Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who will be listening to the program. Thank you again for making uh, That's Truth part of your Tuesday evening routine. And Pastor, we're going to jump into some questions from last week that we weren't able to cover. Right at the end of the program last week, there was a message that came via Facebook from Nevis. It said, Good night, Pastor Murphy and Nathan. Why do you think God allows false prophets and leaders to mislead so many? Sorry for being late. Very pertinent question. I guess I guess some thought to that question um, when it, you send it to me. Uh, and I want to give some, what I think are some good reasons uh, um, first of all, I think we need to understand that God has to honor what I call free human agency. Uh, man is a moral creature, and man has been given a choice. And um, if people want to exercise that choice in teaching or perpetrating false doctrine, uh, God has to honor uh, that person's choice because God has given to us uh, the capacity to make uh, decisions and we exercise our will. So if he's, unless he is not going to honor the free agency that he has given to man, then he would have to intervene every time somebody begins to teach something that is false. But I think uh, if you look at the general tenor of Scripture, it's very, very clear that uh, God does not interrupt um, um, like that. He allows the agency of human beings to exercise their free will, even if that involves teaching things that are false. The other thing is that uh, I believe that it is part of what I call God's judicial judgment. And there are principles in the Bible that speaks to this matter. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, for example, talk about people who turn uh, their back on the truth that God will eventually give them strong delusionment so that they believe a lie. I think that's a principle that's established, that if a person rejects the truth and they keep rejecting the truth, uh, eventually they'll lose the capacity to, to comprehend the truth. Remember in Isaiah he said, seeing they will see and they will not see, hearing they will hear and not hear. And he explains that that is a prophecy that God made, that because these people's ears have become fat, the Bible says, uh, that is, they have not listened. They've been having the truth preached again and again and again and again to the point where the truth has no impact, and now they become susceptible to lies. So I do think it's part of God's judicial judgment on those who don't respond to the truth. The other thing I think that is important to bear in mind is that it, I think it's also part of the prophetic warning uh, that awakens us to the reality that we are living very close to the Lord's return. 
Uh, our Lord mentions again and again that the key factor in the end time is going to be deception and false prophets and false teachers. So when we begin to see this avalanche of, of uh, all these false teachings and so on, even in the church, we should set up our antennas and become aware that we are nearer to the end than uh, we, when we first believe. For example, Thessalonians said that he will not return until this first have fallen away. And that's the apostasy that the Bible predicts is going to come. Um, also, uh, you know, when we look at the other factors that you find in the book of uh, Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4, and also First Timothy chapter 4, you'll find that Paul talks about uh, perilous times coming, he talks about men giving heed to seducing, seducing spirits. So there's no doubt that when you read what these guys are teaching, and it's so acceptable in the church, and these are some of the mega stars that you find on television, uh, you ask yourself, how could we become so undiscerning and embrace such false teaching? Uh, the only explanation is that we are really minutes to midnight, that this is part of the warning that our Lord has given to us. So we need to be more alert and become more Berean Christians, examining what is being taught and using the Scripture as a standard by which we evaluate what people are teaching. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, our Lord uh, says to Israel uh, that he allowed certain things to test the people, whether or not they will hold to the uh, principles and the scripture and the law that he's given to them, or they're going to deviate. It was part of the test uh, to see if they're going to genuinely follow the scripture or listen to what uh, prophet says. And by the way, that is where uh, we need to be very to understand that God has exalted his word above his name, and the standard that he has given to us is word, and whether or not we're going to stick with the word or go towards teachers or charismatic personalities or the, what is called the personality cult, uh, that is going to be a test whether we listen to people who are very eloquent, people who perhaps got the, the capacity to speak uh, with, with uh, influence and uh, uh, or whether we're going to listen to the plain word of Scripture. In other words, are we going to allow the oratory of a man to get precedence over the Word of God. So I think it's a matter of testing as well. So I think those are some of the, the, the reasons I can think of human free agency, the judicial judgment of God as a result of rejecting the truth for so long, uh, the fact that we are, uh, it's partly prophetic warning of what's going to happen in the end time to make us aware where we are, and then, of course, to test God's people to see if they'll be faithful to the Word or be influenced by personalities. You mentioned about the personality, you know, are we going to choose a church or a pastor based on the personality. Pastor, real quickly, what should be my basis for choosing a church? I think the main thing about choosing a church, basically, is the, the, the authority of the Scripture in that church. Uh, they're preaching the Word and preaching the Word authoritatively and not trying to allegorize the Word, but taking the Word very literally and, and preaching. I think that's one of the key things, the, is the Word. What part does the Word of God play within that, that ministry? The other thing I think is important, I've emphasized this again and again, I think uh, you cannot divorce the church from the Great Commission, the mandate that we were given. I think another fact is what part does missions play within a church setting? I mean, you can have a big church with all kinds of programs, but it's all home-centered. It's all about the church. It's not about getting the gospel out and getting the, the, the gospel departed. So I think you cannot, uh, I think a church should be measured uh, by whether or not it's fulfilling the, uh, the Great Commission, the mandate that was given to us. I think that's another factor. Uh, and then um, I think the, t the testimony, the witness of the church is also important. Uh, th those are three main things I can think about right now that I think is very, very important. But I, the main one is, are they really preaching the word? 
and they hold into the scripture uh, is it the authority within the church or they've got some other uh, means thank you for that question that came via Facebook from Nevis now pastor right at the end of last week's program and we weren't able to put the phone call on the air because of time but an individual called uh, also from the island of Nevis and wanted to ask you how many hells are there well, again, uh, this question, I, I want to answer it this way. Uh, if you go into the Old Testament, uh, you'll discover that there's a place called Sheol, right? The word Sheol, when you come to the New Testament, is the word Hades. So the word Hades in the New Testament, this is the Greek word, is equivalent to the Old Testament word Sheol. That's where the dead, uh, we're all dead, that we know departed and went to. When we come to the New Testament, our Lord himself shed some light on that part of the underworld that we, you know, we just learned about people going there, but we weren't too sure what's happening. But in, in Luke chapter 16, he explains that there were actually two compartments, as it were, in that intermediate place. We had one called the bosom of Abraham, where the righteous was comforted. And then you had the other part, which is called Hades proper, where Dives was, 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 was tormented. So for the first time, we're given light into this whole matter that there are two compartments, one where the righteous is and one where the unsaved person goes. We discover that the unsaved person, after he dies, is tormented. Uh, and the, the, the par- if you want to take it as a parable, it doesn't matter. Parable teaches truth. And the truth was that the guy was slain, he was thirsty, etc., etc. It's teaching the truth that after life, there is tremendous discomfort for the person who doesn't know Christ, God as Savior. Now, we now learn as well, when you come to the book of Revelation, and we also in the Gospels, our Lord calls a place called Gehenna, Gehenna which is um, the what we call hell proper. That is where all unsaved people are going finally. We discover that in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And whoever was not found written in the land's book was cast into the lake of fire. So what happens, and then there's another truth that is important for us to understand, that uh, Paul reveals to us that when a believer dies, he no longer goes to Hades. After for the body, he goes to the Lord. And then we learn in the book of um, Ephesians that our Lord led captive the captive, that at his resurrection, he took the saints with him. So the believers are no longer in what you call Abraham's bosom any longer they, they're with the Lord. That, that's, the, that's the teaching that we're given from the, from the New Testament. So to answer the question, there are already two words that refer that people use and refer to, to hell. One is the uh, Hades of the New Testament, which is the Sheol of the Old Testament, and there's Gehenna, which is the final abode of those who are damned. Uh, so there is an intermediary stage where the unsaved person outside of Christ goes at death. But then we're told in the book of Revelation, and death and hell gave up the dead, and they were judged before God, and whosoever was not found within the book was cast. So after Hades, there is a final judgment, and then a person goes to Gehenna. So there is really an ultimate abode of the unjust that is called Gehenna, which is, is hell proper. But there's an intermediary stage called Hades, where the person outside of Christ who does not know God goes and where there is torment. I want to clarify something. You used the word twice there, intermediary. Is that purgatory? No, this is something completely different. Purgatory uh, for the Catholic Church is a place where believers go. And whatever residual sin you have, 
the fires of purgatory, purge of that sin to prepare you for, for heaven. Uh, what we are talking about here has nothing to do with the, with the believer. Uh, remember that um, our Lord has led captive, 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 and we are told not to ask for the body present with the Lord. So we know that when a believer dies, he goes directly to the Lord. Uh, because of the resurrection of Christ. So I hope that is very, very clear. We're not talking about Protestant purgatory at this time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to the individual from Nevis who called with that question. Now, Pastor, there's a series of questions that came in via WhatsApp from a listener in Antigua, and let me go ahead and thank that individual for your faithfulness and listening to the program, and we're going to do our best to answer your questions thoroughly tonight. It starts out, Good night, Dr. Murphy. While studying the scriptures in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And the question, Do you feel offended when I refer to the highest as El? No, I, uh, I'm, ju- I'm not offended when anybody uses a divine name for God, the word El. But as long as the person understands that El is just one of the names of the Bible for God. I mean, there's Jehovah, there's El Shaddai, there's Elion, there's uh, Jehovah Sikkinu, there is Yahweh, uh, there's Jehovah. All of these are different names uh, for God. But the word El speaks to God in terms of its power. The emphasis when it comes with El is that He is the one who comes to power. When it comes to relationships between people, the word is Jehovah or Yahweh. So it all depends on what the emphasis is in the, in the particular passage. So I don't have a problem with a person using El. For example, the passage is the word Jah. I don't have a problem with the word Jah either, if they understand who Jah is. Mm-hmm. Jah is Jehovah the Bible. I can show you that from the Psalms. So, uh, But they use... The problem today is that People get off into a cultish, a cult, a cultish mentality. The Jehovah's Witness used the word Jehovah and had made everything about Jehovah as though he's the, that's the only name in the Bible. And so it built a cult around the word Jehovah. There's a church called the Yahweh Church. They've also built almost a cultic church around the Yahweh, word Yahweh. I'm just concerned that this this person might want to build a cult around the word El. That's what I'm concerned about. But no, I don't have a problem using the word El if this person wants to use that word. But that's not the name that the Lord gave to call him by. When uh, In the book of Exodus, chapter 3, when he was confronted by Moses, Moses wanted to know what was his name. He said, I am that I am. That's the word Yahweh. That's the word Jehovah. He's saying, that's my name. Go and tell Pharaoh, that's my name. So that's the name that he has chosen. The word Yahweh is equivalent to the word Jehovah. Uh, so that's the word, the name by which he wants to be known by. Uh, but using El or El Shaddai or El Elyon, um, all of those are legitimate Bible names, as long as we don't get off on a hobby believing that's the only name of God. A follow-up question. Isn't El to be the one supreme object of worship? Would you agree with that? Well, the Bible makes it clear that God, uh, what do you call him by El or El Shaddai? You call him by Jehovah Yahweh, or you call him by Elion, or El Sh- uh, Jehovah Sidnuk, it doesn't matter. Uh, he is uh, God, or God alone is to be worshipped. There's no question about that. Nobody disputes that. So, uh, and by the way, Christians don't dispute that. I don't have anybody who disputes that, that, that uh, God alone is to be worshipped. So, to answer that question, yes, God alone is to be worshipped. And that name that they got there, El, in that passage, uh, is referring to the same God that is Yahweh, that's Jehovah. So, we're worshipping one God, yes. 
Also in the plurality of God, he is one singular. And Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 says, or the verse is asking the question, that's my question. And the verse reads, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenants of our fathers? And their question again is, uh, the verse is asking the question that I have. Yeah. Look, again, uh, in this particular passage, again, is asserting what the Bible asserts again and again, that God is one. Nobody disputes that. But God is not one in the sense that he is a unit. A unit. He is one in the sense that it's a unity. And we'll, I'll explain that in, in a short moment because I think the confusion that the person has here is that there are cases in the Bible where the Bible says there's one God, and then later you hear Christians talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But unless the person understands that this revelation is progressive, that the God emphasizes his oneness in the Old Testament for one for two reasons. Number one, there's always, always a tendency in the Old Testament for Israel to go into idolatry and polytheism where they have all of these different gods. So he had to emphasize that there's one God. We don't want you to get wrapped up with this idolatry and this polytheism that these heathens have got. Uh, But the other thing I'll try to show you that the word when it says Jehovah is one is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 where it says the man and woman became one. So it's not one that is a unit, it's one that's a unity and that's the person you've got to understand. It's it's what I call a compound noun, just like a family uh, within a family, you have five or six people, but you use a, a singular verb with family. Uh, that's the same concept that is there inherent. And that only becomes clear as you study the doctrine of the Trinity to see how the Bible uh, gradually, progressively unfolds what he means by this unit, this, this oneness. This oneness is one in unity that within the Godhead there's a unity and then we discover later uh, as you study the Bible and I'll I'll try to try to trace that tonight to let the person who is uh, seem to be a little bit confused on this matter to see why we have come to the point where uh, the Bible teaches a trinity. Dr. Murphy there is a veil over the nations and he cites Isaiah 25 7. Faithfulness and truth are his counsel of old. El is always putting emphasis on his name and the things of old. The question is, are these New Testament writers for centuries placing a veil over the nations? Now again, this is where you would have a, a, a real problem with the person who sent in this letter, this uh, this thing, because um, I'm hoping that this person is, uh, if you're professing to be a Christian, you're actually questioning the New Testament. And when you're doing that, you are actually undermining everything that you believe in. Because when you begin to question the authority and the infallibility of the Bible and the inspiration of the New Testament, you're now uh, in a different ball game altogether. You cannot accept the Old Testament and reject the New Testament because clearly the two of them are connected. One is the Old Covenant and one is the New Covenant. Jesus Christ himself uh, uh, put his stamp of approval on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm not too sure why the person would be thinking that the New Testament writers are putting a veil or hiding something that is not there. No, what the New Testament writers are doing are unfolding something that was was there um, in seed form and then later on explaining in greater detail uh, how this thing thing happens. Uh, again, when we begin to trace the Trinity, which I intend to do tonight, um, I will show you that in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, 
it is hinted in different places that this unity that we talk about the Godhead that within the Godhead there's more than one person within the Godhead even that is mentioned in the Old Testament and then we show you how we discovered as a son we discovered as a spirit in the Old Testament and then later on I can show you that how that is developed to explain in all of its fullness what is who is this son and who is this spirit so uh, it is hinted in the Old Testament but the New Testament writers are the ones that were chosen by God to bring this doctrine to full explanation so that we have some clarity on what was hinted at in the Old Testament. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It's a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question live on the air, and the phone number to call is one 462 7420 You can WhatsApp or text your question by sending it to one 268 or you can join us on Facebook Live, and you can comment your question, or maybe you have a suggested topic that you would like us to cover in a future week. Please share that information with us so that we can prayerfully consider that topic. Time across Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.51. We are currently, before we get to our discussed topic, we are answering questions that came in at the end of the program last week and also since the program last Tuesday night. We are addressing some questions that come via WhatsApp from a listener in Antigua. Thank you to the listener who sent those in. The next question from this listener is, Dr. Murphy, I'm using logic here. L says in Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, these things... Uh, yeah, my witnesses. Yeah. Uh, ye are my, and I'm going to read these verses. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. Verse 11, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Do you think that some people will find some New Testament writers illogical? I think that if a person is not aware of the teaching and, and not following the progressive revelation of God in respect to the, the Trinity, I think it could, might seem illogical. Um, the Trinity is not something that you can grasp uh, with your reason. It's not against reason, but it's above reason. Uh, it is something that can be logically presented from the Bible as a doctrine and, and, and uh, can be reasonably understood, it doesn't mean that we can fully comprehend it because this is one of the great mysteries of this of the Bible. Just like everything, by the way, that you can think about uh, about uh, eternity, about uh, even life itself. Life is a mystery. Um, the creation is a mystery. Uh, Christ's death is a mystery. Uh, so uh, when I use the word mystery, I don't mean that it's something that. Um, that is something magical or something that is illogical. I'm just saying there's a truth that was hidden but is now revealed to us. That's what a mystery is. It's not something that is so esoteric that you can't understand it. Now, you may not be able to comprehend it in its totality, but if you apply your logic to the Bible and allow the Bible to speak for itself, uh, I think that it can be cleared up. But a person who doesn't do that, I think it might seem illogical because where in, in cases the New Old Testament teaches one God, then we discover that this in, in, come to the New Testament. We discover not only in the New Testament, but I'm sure in the Old Testament that even before the New Testament brought this knowledge to us, that God hint again and again that is a plurality within the Godhead. 
and I'll show you how that is revealed stage by stage, step by step, and then we're, we're told that there's a son and there's a, there's a spirit, and then when we come to the Old New Testament now, this whole doctrine is coming blazing light so that we can fully comprehend it. But I do feel that people who are not familiar with the Bible and understand the biblical teaching uh, can find it illogical. And the other thing I'd like to say is, this is not a truth that man could derive by natural theology. And what I mean by that, you can't reason the Trinity. This is something that God has revealed. So this is not a truth that anybody can sit down and just concoct in their mind. This is something that God has revealed to us. And had He not revealed it to us, that nobody could could ever conceive of this idea of a Trinity. As a matter of fact, this is as I, I said in another program. This is one of the glories of the Christian faith. That how you try to comprehend God and try to define Him and logically explain Him. He is inexplicable. He's beyond our capacity to, to really grasp with our finite minds the infinite. And that gives you comfort. And that gives me comfort, tremendous comfort, because what if I could comprehend God, everything about God? I mean, that, that to my mind, that is demeaning to God's infinitude. But I'm a limited person, and I can, I, I, I can live with the tension that I can never comprehend God because... I am a puny little human being with very little brain. You're dealing with a God who is omnipotent and, and, and omniscient and, and, and so on. So I don't have a problem not being able to fully comprehend how, 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 this, how this works. Uh, by the way, uh, those of you that have been watching movies recently, they've got some movies up there. With, if you watch uh, Star Wars and all it is, uh, The Force. Uh, man has come up with some in, uh, tremendous imagination. And by the way, some people today believe the Force and don't even believe in the God of the Bible, if you know that. <laughs> yep. so, I've talked to some of them. <laughs> but uh, part, of the, part of the thing that consoles me as a Christian, to be very honest with you, is the incomprehensibility of God, that I can't, I can't get my brain around Him or wrap my brain around to fully understand Him. To my mind, that has a dimension that is beyond human comprehension. That's exactly what a God should be. Uh, and, and and so on, so it, this is some, not something that is um, we can reason out. This is something that's revealed to us, but it's not against reason; it's just above reason, and God has revealed it to us. Isaiah forty four verse twenty four. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Are there, and this is the, I finished with the verse, this is the question, are there any second or third parties mentioned? Only in the New Testament times, other parties are mentioned. Not, that, again, I'll show him that's not true. Okay. Because I will assure you quite clearly that... Um, even in the Old Testament, uh, it is mentioned that God created, the, the Spirit of God created. Uh, in the book of uh, Genesis, it said God created. Uh, so even in the Old Testament, the hints that the Spirit of God was involved in the creation. I can show you that uh, very clearly. So um, the reason why I'm answering all of these questions because they all revolve around one issue. The person is having a problem uh, understanding that there is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, and that's why I'm trying to, I want to deal with that tonight because I, I'm going to show the person, hopefully, if it would listen, uh, we'll go to the Bible and I'll show you very clearly how it is intimated again and again that within the Godhead there's a plurality, that there's more than one within the Godhead. And when I say within the Godhead, they share the same essence, the same substance. 
Uh, I will show you that until finally it's revealed there's a, a son in the Old Testament, a spirit in the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Testament where we discover these three persons uh, in its finality here. Pastor, I'm going to interrupt you for just a minute sure. from that line of thinking. We have a caller calling from uh, our listening area. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good night, good evening. Good evening, sir. Good night, sir. Uh, I would like to, you can answer the question to me, please, about Jonah, in the book of Jonah. Okay, if I can, I would answer it, right? Okay, go ahead. Uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, I'm really, uh, the sailor, the sailor that was in the boat with Jonah, I they get saved, converted after they cast Jonah into the sea. Repeat that again. The, the sailors that was on the boat with Jonah. The sailors? Uh-huh. Yeah. After the Cavillot and Jonah fallen Jonah and they throw Jonah overboard, uh-huh. I they get saved after that? Well, we don't know uh, if they got saved after that, but if I... Uh, if I were uh, a sailor in that point of time and um, I throw a guy overboard and the sea went calm, it would wake me up to something supernatural. So, but there's no indication that that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to interrupt you yeah, just a minute. Uh, I recently studied this just over the last couple months, and a number of commentaries. When you look at, uh, and I'm flipping here in my Bible. Uh, when you look at Jonah when they first had the storm mm-hmm. and you were to look at uh, the men feared, the, the, just a general fear, and then it developed to a point where uh, Jonah explained that he was running from God mm-hmm. to a more of a – I don't remember the exact word the commentaries used, but a higher level of fear. And at the point where the, they threw Jonah overboard and everything went quiet, the word that is there is a reverent – the same word that we would use for worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, yeah, an awe. And it says that they put uh, – they offered uh, – they made vows, and I think it even says they made some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Um some commentaries, not all, but some commentaries seem to think that 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 some of them on the ship turned to the true Yahweh uh, at that point. Again, that's just my input yeah, from the yeah, study yeah, I recently yeah, did. Yeah. Well, he answered that question for you, so I think if you want to take that as a, as a comprehensive answer, he's just taking uh, the, f- the word that is used there. He's saying that uh, it's a unique word for reverential awe, that after they've seen what had happened and it was a calm, it impacted them to the point where they reverence God and uh, w- would seem to indicate that some of them at least uh, yielded their allegiance to God. Yeah, because that's what I, I, I agree with. Like, to me, fear comes fear come over them and that fear the God of Jonah. Yeah. But I don't, don't for, uh, if I might interject here, don't forget that you have fly-by-night fear as well. You've got people who, yeah. uh, in a crisis, they uh, show reverence, they, they, they respond, and then as soon as the crisis is over and they get back to normal life, their fear of God disappears. So uh, so it, you have it both ways. I understand that one. And, and the second question now, after sure. uh, Jonah gets swallowed by the fish, mm-hmm. Do you believe he, he, he had dead in his belly and God raised him back? Some people because believe that. Some people believe that. Some of the commentaries would tell you that, that they believe that uh, he really uh, died, etc., etc. That's a matter of interpretation. Uh, what is important there, as far as I'm concerned, is that whether he literally died and God resurrected him or not, he became a, a, a type or a symbol 
of Christ going into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So that was the sign, the ultimate sign. But uh, there are people that believe that he, he died and was re- re- revived, etc., etc. Um, that's a matter of interpretation. Yeah, because, because he doesn't mention that the belly of the fish was like, was like hell to him. Yeah, yeah, right. That's the line. But again, the, the, the thing about that is, is Jonah employing uh, imagery. Uh, you know, um, is he or is he talking in terms of literally, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, because he also talk about the the seaweeds and stuff like that in in the belly of the whale. So um, the important thing, uh, as far as that is concerned, is that whether he was dead or resurrected, the fact that he was salvaged and he was puked back upon the land and then he was able to carry the, the message that God and, the, and of course the whole lesson about that whole parable don't run away from God right he'll come after you <laughs> and uh, you, you fulfill your calling and, and get out the message so but that's the thing but I, I don't have any um, I don't have any problems with anybody believing that there was a little death and a little resurrection but once the person understands it's a matter of interpretation Okay, and what last thing? Sure. Last thing, I, have, I have a brother. He, he, he goes to the Baptist church. Uh-huh. But he telling me you now, why is it Adventist? Uh-huh. I tell him, what are you doing about it? He tell me, well, he doesn't discuss any religion, he doesn't anything. Uh-huh. I say, but do you believe you want your wife to come and worship you feel? Yeah. He, he, he doesn't even look at that. So, what, what do you find about that? Well, I, I depends. Suppose, was he married after? Uh, and then became a, a Baptist. Uh, was, did, did he marry her knowing she was a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, that would be my problem because if you're going to marry a person and you have such differences in, rela- in, sp- in respect to your faith, it not only creates problems for you, but it creates problems for the children. So I, I don't know if the guy got married to her and then he got saved afterwards. I, I don't know how, how it is, but I would not recommend I would not recommend a Baptist, for example, to marry an Adventist because the, the differences are so so are so, um, so 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 problematic. Which church are you going to go to? Which which day of worship are you going to go to? And then your kids, uh, are you going to teach them law or grace? Uh, and there are a lot of other issues. You've got the the uh, the the um, the doctrine of the um, the investigative judgment, uh, which is a cultic doctrine. Uh, you're going to teach your ki- ch- children that, uh, you know. So I think that it's problematic. But it may, might have been that they were married and then he got saved or she got saved, whatever it is. But also, I think that a, wo- a woman should go. A woman should go. A, a wife should be with her husband at church. Uh, it should be the wife going with the husband as opposed to the husband going to the wife. Doesn't mean that she, you know, you've got to decide these matters before you're going to a, a marriage. With otherwise, you'll fracture your family and create problems. Well, what I find that funny because I and him get saved together in baptism uh-huh. at a very young age, uh-huh. and he didn't yet marry. Uh-huh. But, but now and what did after he went back to the world and now he went back to the world. He will come back. Now he's telling him married to that Adventist lady. Yeah, would that be a mistake if he if he came back to the Lord and then he married her knowing she was an Adventist? Um, I I think it's it's problematic. You want to marry somebody that you you have a common faith with, that you can have a good relationship with. You got to be thinking in terms of your children uh, and bringing up your kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, by the way, y- y- there are times when you should not even marry another Christian. 
because the kind of because a person makes a profession of faith doesn't mean you just marry a person because they say they're a believer. They are good believers and they're rotten believers. They are believers that make good wives. They believe that make bad wives. They believe that make good husbands. They believe make bad husbands. So I don't think it's just a matter. I'm not. I'm not trying to be bias or prejudice against a particular religion per se. But I do think when it comes to making that important decision about who you're going to marry, that you should have a meeting of minds. Uh, worship around the same core doctrines and beliefs. Otherwise, you are going to have war and fightings within your home. You're not going to have peace. And anybody who has these interdenominational marriages will normally tell you they have all kinds of debates uh, that brings the family into disruption. And that's not what you want. You want peace and calm, and you want unity in your home. And uh, the greatest part of unity is to have uh, the same type of faith and the same type of beliefs. So, what? but... Uh -huh. But Pastor, do you believe if he married while he was in the world, do you believe it is a wrong thing to do? Or? You mean if he married when he, was, when he, when he went from the Lord and married in the world? After, after he got back, that's why he got married to her. Yeah, but if he married, he's married. I mean, yes. unsafe people, if they marry, they're married before God. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. That, uh, so whether a person is a Christian or not, when you make vows before God, you're married. Now, you might have made a bad decision, but your job would be to make your marriage work now. And if I were in his position, uh, I would try to influence my wife to, to in, in the in, in the correct way of believing, which he would, as a Baptist, should believe that he had the correct doctrine. But again, uh, if he if he married when he was in a backslidden state, now he's come back to faith and trust in Christ, he's going to have problems. He just have to accept the fact that he made a bad choice in terms of the 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 the, the, the not having a, a corresponding faith in his wife, and be prepared to work through those kind of problems. But don't destroy his marriage because uh, he's an advance he's an advance he's a Baptist they should try to make that marriage work as best as possible and you know the Lord can salvage that at some point in time but if you make wrong decisions you always will have to deal with those things afterwards but it's not something that's unsolvable it might take more time than normal but he can work through that process God bless you sir thanks for calling you too sir Thank you for the call. Thank you for listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on Tuesday evenings. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.08 on this Tuesday evening. And right before that call, Pastor was going through and starting to develop some thoughts on the Trinity and answering questions specifically from a WhatsApp question that came in from a listener in Antigua. Pastor, I've got two more aspects of this questioning, yeah, and then ahead. I'll let you answer it collectively. Sure, sure. Uh, Dr. Murphy, L has no equal. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no other God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. It is also mentioned in other passages, only in the New Testament, is when we start to mention others equal to him. That's why even the Yale University scholars question the New Testament writers. Uh, my, my immediate response to that is, Yale is an apostate school, okay? So you, do, you don't ever want to listen to what Yale has to say. Yale, Harvard, uh, Princeton, all of those were good, solid, biblical schools, all founded to train ministers of the gospel. All of those schools are no longer solid, orthodox, Bible-believing 
uh, schools any longer. Most of them don't believe the Bible. Most of them uh, discredit the, the biblical writers, etc., etc. So when I hear Yale, uh, that set up a red light immediately that this is an apostate school that no longer holds the biblical truth. Uh, they still have, and I don't understand why they still have theological seminaries at these schools. They should close them down because really, in truth and fact, they're teaching error, etc., etc. So Yale is not a good example in terms of because Yale University doesn't accept that. That's not the answer to the whole question. Yale has been an apostate school for a long time, and all of those schools that were once founded to teach ministers went away from the gospel, embraced evolution, gone away from the Bible, and now they teach heresy. So that doesn't bother me that Yale uh, doesn't um, question the New Testament writers. Um, Again, I'm reading your questions because all of these basically hint to me that the the, the main issue here is... uh, is there a uh, God the Son? Is there God the Father? Is there God the Holy Spirit? Is there a Trinity? That is the whole thing that is being being discussed here again. And what is happening? They're taking one or two verses in the Bible, and the and and when it says that God is one, I repeat, the word that is used there is a compound oneness. It's not a unit. It's a unity. Is that like man and his wife became one? Clearly, Adam was not Eve, and Eve was not Adam, but they were one. Uh, it's a compound concept that there is here within the, the, the family, a unity. Uh, that's the same concept that you'll find uh, in the Bible. The other question, Nathan, has to do with the Lamb. And I want to deal with that uh, maybe after I deal with this one of the Trinity. Is that okay? Okay, yeah. So yeah, yeah. you'll go ahead and do the Trinity Yeah, now. one of the Trinity. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Let me explain to the, the person who wrote all of these why and how we derive biblically on this concept uh, of the Trinity. Um, the first thing that we need to understand is that the, the concept is in seed form in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that, there are hints in the Old Testament that there is within the Godhead uh, a unity a unity, and also a diversity, at least more than one. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, first of all, you, you discover that the Bible talks about in the very first verse of the Bible in the beginning God you see the word there God is the word Elohim you see the word El is in there but El is a singular of that word so that word Elohim is really in the, in the in, in, if you check it out it's God's it's a plural but it has a singular verb uh, so it's a plural noun but a singular verb so there is a unity there there's a plurality there but it's not a plurality where you think of three separate persons, basically. That's why you use uh, that one, that, that singular verb. So, and the other thing is, um, there are also hints of it from the very beginning. For example, God said, let us make man in our own image. In the image of God made he man. Now notice, let us make God in our own image. Let us, in our image. Now we know that man is made in the image of God. So clearly, there is consultation and there's some kind of a um, discussion on this whole matter, but it's within the Godhead. Uh, it's not with the angels because we know that man was never made in the image of angels. And after m- making that statement, we are told that God created man in his own image. Then they said, um, uh, let us go down and confound uh, the people. Do you remember at the Tower of Babel? When God had told the, the people to scatter and they refused to scatter, I'm going to build this tower. They've got a ziggurat going up to heaven. And God said, let us go down and confound the language of the people. Again, notice the word let us. It's, it's a plural. Uh, 
And then after man had sinned, uh, God said, um, lest man become like one of us. See, Clearly there's a, there's a plurality there. Uh, but again, they all are with singular verbs, okay? Uh, Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verse 8. Uh, you remember that passage? Who will go for us? Uh, again, who is this us? See, uh, Who is this us that, is ke- that keeps re- being repeated again and again in, in the Old Testament? Um, so you've got Elohim, that is plural. You've got this us. Let us make man. Man will become like one of us. Let us go down, confound the language. Who will be? Who will go for us? Uh, and uh, and the other thing is that you also got the word uh, a plural verb uh, in Genesis eleven seven when it says go. Let us go down and confound the, the languages of the people. Did you see the word uh, go to? It's the word come, and that word is plural. See, come. Let us. It's now plural. So clearly the verb is now plural and the us is now plural as well. So we hinted there that whatever uh, this our concept of God is, is that there is a plurality within the Godhead. Now we don't know what that means yet. We just hinted, so we're not too sure what is this that is there, uh, etc. And these plurality, these wouldn't be including God and the angels this is talking about? No, because, uh, again, I repeat, man was never made in the image of of man, uh, of angels. We're told quite clearly man is made in the image of God, okay? So this plurality there is referring to the the Godhead. And then uh, Jehovah is also distinguished from Jehovah in the book of Genesis. Look at Genesis 19.24. You remember when he was going to, when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? If you look at Genesis 19.24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now you got the Lord down earth raining fire from the Lord in heaven. Okay? So you've got Jehovah speaking to Jehovah. and You've got one on earth. You've got one in, in, in heaven, basically. Uh, so you've got here now that there's a distinction. Jehovah raining brimstone from Jehovah in heaven. And remember that when Abraham, Jehovah was part, was who spoke to, to Abraham when he came, and one of the, the, the three beings that came was, was Jehovah. So you've got Jehovah raining down fire from Jehovah in heaven. Uh, so there's clearly here, uh, what does that mean? This is part of the mystery. How can Jehovah rain fire from Jehovah? Again, we, we, we are a little bit puzzled. We're not too sure what is going on here, but we know something that Jehovah is talking to Jehovah. Now, he either got amnesia or something, or there's some comp- some reason around this whole matter, okay? Then we read in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, that Jehovah has a son. If you read uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will, decla- I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. So here it is now that we now discover that Jehovah has a son. The Lord Jehovah has a son. Again, we're in, in the Old Testament. So we got this us. we got this plurality. We've got Jehovah talk, Jehovah on earth, talk, Jehovah in heaven, raining on fire. Uh, we've got this word Elohim, uh, which is plural. Now we discover that Jehovah has a son. But who is his son? Right? But we'll learn later from that same passage that Peter quotes that same passage that this is Jesus. We, we'll, we'll come to that later. But I'm just saying that it's the hint in the Old Testament. We go from a, a plurality 
Now we're to the point where we understand that uh, Jehovah has a son. Uh, and if you look at Psalm 110 and verse 1, we find the Lord speaking to the Lord. A Psalm of David. The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We know who David's Lord is, right? But notice the Lord is speaking to the Lord. David's Lord. Now, what does that mean? Is the Lord speaking to himself? Uh, again, these are part of the whole thing. We're trying to make sense of what we're finding in the Bible and we're discovering, uh, wait a minute, there, there's a plurality here again. But what is this, right? Then we come to um, Isaiah uh, 9, verse 6. If you could read that. Um. Yeah, Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Again, notice that the Son is coming. This Son that God has is coming. But notice the name for this Son. He's called what? The Mighty God. See, So whatever, whoever this Son is, He is of the nature of God, the Mighty God. Again, again, this is just another hint. This is not, we don't have the full doctrine there as yet, but we're being led to understand that there's a Son, and now we discover this Son is called the Mighty God. And then in Micah 5, 2. Micah 5, 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Again, notice that, now we know that the Son is coming. Now we're told a little bit that this one is going to come. He's coming upon the But where is he coming from? Bethlehem. Not only the but look where he's coming from in eternity. Who's going forward from when? Everlasting to everlasting. So this son is eternal. Hmm. Right? So he's not just a son. God has a son, and we learn that he has an eternal son. So we're getting hints and hints and hints that within this Godhead, we know that there's a son, we know there's an eternal son that's going to come. Then we discover something else. There's not only a son, we discover there's a spirit as well. Genesis 1 and verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So you've got the Spirit of God now. Is this the same as God? Or So we've got to, have to find out if the Spirit of God is the same as God. But now we've got the Spirit of God involved in creation as well. So you just got a hint now that there's God, and now you've got the Spirit involved as well. And then look at Genesis uh, 6.3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now we realize that there's a spirit that is engaged in restraining man. So now we, we discover there's not only a son, but there's a spirit that restrains man. And then if you, there are other passages that mention the, the spirit and his work. Uh, Numbers 27, verse 18. Psalm 51, verse 1. Um, Psalm 51, verse 1 is an interesting one. Look at that one. Psalm 51 and verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Okay, I was looking for the one which said that take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Uh, oh. that, I, I, I've got you wrong. Um, but there in Psalm, it's 51. I forgot which, which, but it might be verse. might be 11. Maybe I didn't write the other. 
But anyhow, yeah, yep. mm-hmm. it's 11, read it. Yeah, yeah. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now there's a spirit that, that comes upon men that we learn later that will remain with them. Uh, for the New Testament. But notice now, we've now another dimension. You've got a son, and notice the spirit is actively involved. But who is the spirit? Who is the son? And that's where progressively we're now being told again and again, uh, and this will become the greater discovery uh, in these matters. The other thing I would say, uh, Nathan, is when you look at what is called the trisagio, you remember in uh, Isaiah 6 3, which says, uh, when he saw the Lord lifted, he said, holy, holy, holy. Uh, it's believed that the tr- this, this tr- uh, it's called a trisagia. In other words, three times, holy, holy, holy. That There's a hint there that within, it's called the holiness, the Father, holy, the Son, holy, etc. But we don't know that yet. But the fact that only th- it's mentioned holy, holy, only three, clearly uh, there seemed to be a little hint that we should take a little note. That. And then in the Aaronic um, benediction in Numbers chapter 6, uh, look at verse 24 to 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. But you notice in every, it's just three. It's one blessing, but three times the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Hmm. It's also believed that that is a hint, not not in all of it. It's just like baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name but three persons. What we are saying here is that within the Old Testament, you already got a hint uh, that there's a plurality within the Godhouse. There's a us. Jehovah is talking to Jehovah. Uh, you've got a son. You've got the Spirit. And uh, now you're going to, every time that God is called holy, is thrice holy. And the benediction is, is thrice reference to the Lord. All of that is hints intimated in the Old Testament that God is, there's a plurality. Now we move from the New Testament, we come into the, the Old Testament, we come into the New Testament, and we find that this doctrine that is hinted at in the Old Testament is now clarified in the New Testament in greater detail. Uh, and let me explain what I mean. First of all, in general statements uh, and allusions, you find that. Take the baptismal formula when our Lord was on the scene of the baptism. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son is on earth, and the Holy Spirit descends on a dove. So we now realize that there are three operating together. Uh, and, and that is bringing some clarity now. We've got this, the Father, you've got the Son, now you've got the Holy Spirit. And then you remember um, in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. If you would uh, read that, 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. No, did, so go ahead, go ahead, read That it. he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in you, and shall be in you. Again, you've got the Son, speaking to the Father, asking for another called the Spirit, who is a he. But the word another there is very unique. It's another of the same kind. That's the, what mm-hmm. the word another there means, another of the same kind. I'm, I'm going to send one of the same kind. In other words, within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of the same kind. They're beginning to belong to one genus, basically. Uh, so we've got the, the statement there. And then in, in, take the baptismal formula in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew twenty eight nineteen says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Again, you've got the three, but notice it's one name. Now, you can't put 
a human being on the same level as God. You can't put an angel on the same level of God. But you've got these three put together on the same level, showing the level of equality. So clearly, uh, there's no differentiation here um, in that regard. And then look at the apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. 2 Corinthians yeah. chapter 13, verse 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Again, you're talking about three different things here, basically. Grace, what's the other one? Uh, the love, love of God. And, uh, God and, and communion. And communion. But notice that the three names are associated mm-hmm. uh, at a level of equality. It, 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 you, can't, you couldn't say uh, the love of God and the fellowship of David Murphy or the fellowship of Michael the Archangel. You couldn't say that. But there's no, there's, there's a clear level of equality there as far as that. And then you find that also in the New Testament, uh, the three names are associated in a triadic form in respect to the work. For example, look at Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and 6, 4 to 6. First Corinthians or 7? Yeah, First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 4? Yeah. Chapter 12, sorry, verse 4 to 6. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but this, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Yeah, again, notice three distinct persons, the Father, the God, there is the Son, and, uh, and then there's the Lord, and then there's the, the Spirit. You've got the three of them in, in, in a triadic form in respect to their work. You, you find this joint working together all three on a level of equality. Nobody could ever tell me you can put any human being's name there on that level or even an angelic name because they're not on the level of equality. God will not share his glory uh, with, with another. And then um, I could also ask you to turn to First Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 18, but you'll find that that triadic uh, association is there among them. That brings me to another thing. Okay. That when you come to the New Testament, you discover that all these three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are now recognized as God. All three are called God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we now begin to understand that this Son, this Spirit we saw in the Old Testament, is hinted at, that now comes over into the New Testament. We're now given a full revelation that they're all God. And look at, uh, well, we, we don't have to argue that the Father is God, but look at uh, John six twenty seven. John 6.27 says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for he... That's 27? Yeah, 627. For him hath God the Father sealed. Again, God the Father. Clearly, he's mentioned there. Uh, He's also mentioned in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. So we have established that God is called the Father, God the Father. Now let's come to the Son. Uh, And by the way, this is where the Christian doctrine differs from all other religions. Other religions could survive without their founder, because other religions are based on the principles that those founders left. Christianity falls on Christ. You take away Christ and you don't have any Christianity because it's not just founded on the principles, it's founded on the person himself, that he is the living Christ. 
if he is not living today, we have a false religion. We have a bogus religion. And our religion, is no, there's no difference between our religion and any other religion. But what makes the Christian faith relig- uh, unique is that the Christian faith religion is built on Jesus Christ. If you remove Jesus Christ, you remove Christianity. You can remove uh, Muhammad, you still got the teaching of Muhammad, and people can still continue that, and it doesn't matter whether or not, or, or Confucius. But when it comes to Christianity, everything revolves around him because he is alive and well, and without him we can do nothing. That's the unity. So when we come to the doctrine of Christ, now we discover in the Bible uh, that he is called God. Seven times, at least in the New Testament, uh, he's called John chapter 1, verse 1. We all know that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, and also John chapter 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Again, uh, those of you who know uh, the Greek language, uh, A.T. Robinson, the great uh, scholar, uh, says that this is what you call a vocative of direct address. My Lord and my God. And you find that Thomas is there speaking to Christ. Okay? This after um, he, he came in and Thomas, first of all, didn't believe he had, he had risen and then he, he appeared to him and then he said, he fell down and said, oh my Lord and my God and he worshipped him. So he's called God there. In, and then um, if you look at Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13 reads, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in the Greek construct there, it's referring to one person. In other words, the the, the, the great God and our Savior is one, according to the Greek construction. Uh, so he is God there as well. Uh, there, And then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 is a very powerful verse as well. Hebrews 1, 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Here is God the Father saying to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever. He himself is calling Jesus Christ God. So it's not a matter of, you know, what I'm trying to say is that we're now discovering that this Son is God the Son. It's now becoming with greater clarity in the New Testament. And then one of the most fascinating verses, by the way, is uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you just look there, Philippians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Or favorite chapters. Yeah. What verse? The, uh, I think it's verse number 4 and following. Uh, Philippians 2, 4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. You want me to yeah. keep going? No, that, that, that's good because uh, you notice that he, he being in the form of God and that word means the exact imprint. It's like I take a stamp and I stamp it. Whatever you see the stamp, my exact image. You can't say that he is the father. That's why you have to use the word form of the same substance. And notice that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after. So here is a, a claim, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing, that Christ was had equality with God. Now that is either blasphemy or that's revelation. Mm-hmm. You've got to make a choice because no man can say that, um, that make a statement like that, that Jesus Christ was had equality with God uh, without acknowledging that you're claiming that he has the, of the same essence. 
uh, there. So we're told there that he is, is God as well. And then um, the other one, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 3.16 says to us, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Notice the great mystery of God. God was manifest in the flesh. Remember his name? You should call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So here again we know we know discovered that this son is of the same nature as God. Now, that's revelation. That's not something that uh, anybody just concocts. Uh, this is something that is systematically uh, hinted in the Old Testament, incrementally presented, and progressively revealed that this Son is none other than God the Son, of the same nature as the Father. So this us now becomes very clear, because remember, let us make man... Then we read in uh, John chapter 1 that it is true, the word that the world was made. There was nothing made that was not made by him. He is the agent of creation. Now we understand that this let us involve the Son uh, in, the, in the creation process. So we, we now discover the, 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 the Jesus Christ is called God. But there's more than that that helps you to understand his deity. Uh, for example, um, the offices of deity are ascribed to him. He is the creator in, in John chapter 1 and verse number 3. If you read that. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Colossians 1.16 is another verse. Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Again, if you read, it, read the passage, it's talking about Jesus Christ, all things made by him, created by him. So he's, he's now had the office of creator. And we learn in the Old Testament, it's God that created. Now we begin to understand what this lettuce is all about. That uh, that. In the counsel of God and the creation process, uh, the Trinity is at work. The Holy Spirit is brooding over the water like a dove, brooding over the water, um, etc., organizing, as it were. And then we've come to the Psalms to show you that as well. Uh, but then not only that, he is the upholder of all things. If you look at Colossians 1.17. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. Read the passage referring to Jesus Christ. He's before all things by him. All. So he holds this whole world together. Uh, this is not an angel. Can't do that. Hmm. This, is, this is a revelation that within the Godhead, there's God the Son, who's the agent of creation, but he's also the one that keeps this whole universe together. Uh, otherwise, the whole system would collapse. This is an attribute and an office that only God can fulfill. So he's not only called God and named God, but he also fulfilled the offices of God in that respect. He's creator and he's also the beholder. But the other thing is this, that he is identified as the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And that, 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 that's what now begins very, very, begin to understand that the Jehovah of the Old Testament really is a manifestation, manifestation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um, let me show you several verses in that, in that regard. Um, uh, let's let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter forty verse three. 
while I'm turning there, let me just remind you that this program will be podcast uh, in the next day or two, and you'll be able to go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast, and you can listen to it in much greater detail. I know we are throwing a lot of scripture verses at you. Great information, great to have it, but to be able to go back and study it in depth, you probably want to have a recording of it yourself so you can search for That's Truth Podcast. And you can look for episode 116. Uh, What chapter in Isaiah, Pastor? Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40 and verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If you read the passage very carefully, Jehovah is coming, the Lord is coming. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. What we discover in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, uh, verse uh, 3, is that this Lord that is coming is Jesus Christ. He's the one that John the Baptist said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So we now discover that this Jehovah who is coming in the Old Testament is now the Jesus of the New Testament. He, he was where... In other words, this is not a new person. This is a person who has been hidden, as it were, in the Old Testament, but now we are given revelation that Jehovah of the Old Testament is actually Jesus' New Testament. What I'm saying to the, the person who is a little bit concerned on, on these matters is that this is something that the Bible reveals. It's not something that we came up with an idea in our minds and concocted the idea. This is something that uh, God reveals to us in His Word, and we take His Word very seriously. We may not be able to fully comprehend uh, how it can be that you have uh, one nature, one essence, and three persons uh, that are called God at the same time. But yet they must not be segmented, the, the tritreism, that they are three separate gods. This is part of the mystery, how you can have three persons within one essence. And that's the difficulty of trying to call. But it's something that God has revealed to us in the, in the Word. And that's why I say to you that it might be above our human reasoning, but not against our human reasoning. Because we can logically show you from the Scriptures, using the Scriptures, that this is what is revealed to us. And that's why we hold to this, this great doctrine. Uh, we, we could go on, uh, Nathan, and, and give some other other things. Yeah, let me just mention as well that this this Christ also possesses all the attributes of God. Uh, and when I say that, the non-communicable attributes of God, the non-transferable, that is His eternality, His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, and His immutability. Those are non-communicable attributes of God. You can't now, the moral attributes of God, we can, we can be just, we can love, but we cannot be eternal. And we're not eternal. Only God is eternal. We are not omniscient. We don't everything, but yet He knows everything. We cannot be omnipresent, every, but He can be. We cannot. We are not omnipotent, but He is. And of course, we cannot be immutable, but He is immutable. These attributes that belong to the, the, the divine God are the same attributes that apply to Jesus Christ. His eternality uh, is there in John um, chapter 1 verse 1 is also in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 11 Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and Revelations 1 verse 11 uh, uh, he claims to be Alpha and the Omega the God of the Old Testament claims he's the first and last Jesus claimed I'm the first and last as well now that's either blasphemy uh, uh, that he's making that same kind of statement or he's at the level of equality sharing the same nature so he's eternal and then he's omnipresent and I don't have to dispute that um, 
John 3.13 is an interesting verse, if you would just look at that for just a moment. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. No, read that again. (laughs) If you you just read that, trying to comprehend that, really, he's on earth, but yet he's in heaven at the same time. He's everywhere at the same time. That's part of the mystery of of the Godhead. And also look at uh, Matthew... Eighteen verse twenty. Matthew chapter eighteen and verse twenty says, "For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them." Again, so you got two and three gathered in Antigua, two and three gathered in St. Lucia. You got all over the world, but yet I'm there. Hmm. This is part of His attribute as as a, as a sharing the same nature and essence of God. He's omnipresent, and of course, uh, He said in Matthew chapter, "And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the earth." Uh, so you've got the, not only is he eternal, but he's om- and then he's omniscient. He knows everything, basically. Um, we don't have the time to go through all of this, but uh, it, it said that you don't need to be told what is in man because he knew what was in man. Remember that in, in, in John chapter 3, just before he met with Nicodemus. Uh, so he knows he's omniscient as well. And, and the other thing I think that's very, very significant, uh, Nathan, is that uh, we don't have to argue of his omnipotence. We had he had power over death, power over disease, power over the elements, power over nature, and of course we know that he's immutable. I think that's the important verse there, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse eight. Hebrews thirteen, verse, verse eight. eight says, "Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever." Okay, you can't dispute that. In other words, he's immutable. He doesn't change. Only God is unchangeable. God is immutable. That's what the word means. And the other thing I'll just point out is that Jesus Christ, uh, to show that he's deity, he exercised what you call the prerogative of deity. For example, I would ask anybody to answer this one question: Who can forgive sin? There's only one answer. Sin is against God. Only God can forgive sin. But yet, in Matthew chapter nine, Luke chapter seven, and Mark chapter two, Jesus is forgiving sin. So he's taking that prerogative belong to God and claiming it. As a matter of fact, that's why they want to stone him. You know, who are you to be able to to say who your sins be forgiven you? You know, uh, so they had a problem with it, but that's because, again, he's exercising the prerogative of God because he's God, the Son. Uh, who gives life? God. God. Who takes life? God. Who can raise life? God. And yet that's exactly what Christ did. He said, I'm in resurrection and the life. And again, who has the right to execute judgment? God. Only God, because sin is against God. But yet, He is the one that has the, we're told in the book of um, Acts chapter 17, that God is raising up whereby He will judge the whole world by this one. See, So when you look at the prerogatives uh, of God, you find that Christ exercised those prerogatives. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, I'm saying the evidence is there when you look in the, the, the New Testament that this son has the attributes that belong to God. He's called God. So we, we've got now the, the whole idea of the, the son uh, that is revealed in the Old Testament, and we discover that the revelation of the New Testament shows us that this son uh, is God. And then the other thing I would add here, uh, Nathan, is that who is to be worshipped? Only God is to be worshipped. Yet Jesus Christ was worshipped. You remember... Um, when the the wise men came, the Bible says, and they came to worship him. You remember, likewise, um, 
when the Greeks came in the book of John, they came to worship him. Remember also that uh, um, Thomas, after he got this revelation, he, he fell down and worshipped the Lord, saying, My Lord and my God. Right? So he accepts worship. But if he accepts worship, and only God is to be worshipped, you either got a blasphemer, you got a deceiver, or you got the mystery of this whole doctrine of the let us. This plurality is explained now that this one is God the Son, who has uh, to be worshipped, just like God the Father. Remember, uh, the Father said, you must honor the Son as you honor the Father. Now think about it. How do we honor the Father? We honor the Father by worshiping the Father, praying to the Father, etc., etc. But yet we must honor the Son as you honor the Father. So clearly there is this, this, this equality uh, that is there in respect uh, to the Son. So uh, we can go on and go on and go on. I just want to establish tonight uh, very, very clearly that there is the Father, there is the Son, and of course there is the Spirit. And I would just uh, not want to, to exhaust this study, but if you look in uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, Acts chapter 5, that's the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, because we can send up, spend another uh, lecture here dealing with the proof that the Holy Spirit uh, is God, that He's called God, that He has the attributes of God, etc., etc. In the same way we did it with Christ, we can do it with the Holy Spirit. But I think in Acts chapter 5, um, when Ananias and Sapphira had lied. You remember the story? Yeah, I've and got it here in front okay. of me. Can you read it, please? Yeah. Uh, starting in verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine spirit to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the piece of land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Again, he lied to the Spirit. And Peter said, you've not lied to men, you lied to God. So here the Holy Spirit is called God. So now we discover that this Son and this Spirit, they all carry the same title, God, right? And uh, if we have time, maybe the next time we we we, we look at the, the Spirit, we'll, we'll show that the Holy Spirit have all the attributes. He was involved in creation. Uh, he's involved in associated with his, the name of Christ, like we, we mentioned in the benediction, in the um, also in the commission. Uh, we find him associated with God uh, as far as the, the work, triadic work, the Father and the Son working. So what we have discovered in the New Testament now is is that there is God the Father, there's God the Son, and now there's God the Spirit. And, and that, that did not come um, to us in the Old Testament with that kind of clarity, but systematically intimated in the Old Testament and then incrementally uh, unfolded until we now come to the fullness of the New Testament when we discover that it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I'm just saying to the, the writer uh, who has seemed to have problems, uh, if you surrender the Old Testament, you surrender Christianity. Uh, and uh, you cannot be a Christian and abandon the New Testament. So you're either going to embrace the full doctrine of the Bible or you need to abandon the doctrine of the Bible. You can't hold to both. And, and this is a truth that is not something that we have concocted. This is something that's revealed to us. And it's revealed to us in God's Word. Logically, 
it is presented in God's word so that we can we can we can grasp it with our mind that it is taught in the New Testament. How to explain how that works is where the mystery is. And a lot of people, uh, you, 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 unless they can understand with the reason and work things out, they have a problem. But I don't have anybody who can understand and explain to me electricity. I've looked at that thing again and again. I don't even know why there's a force that pushes the the electrons. I don't know why there's a force. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a, a person who, you know, I'm a little fascinated with electronics and I, I try to do it. It's part of my hobby. But up to now, I try to understand why there's this force pushing the electrons. I can't understand where the force comes from. I know it's there, but because I can't explain it, doesn't mean I can't use the light. And if you doubt that it's there, to stick your finger in the outlet. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't comprehend that. And now yeah. that, you know, when I was a, in, in doing chemistry, they taught me that it was just the atom, the proton, the neutron. Now they discovered that a lot more other particles within the, the, the atom is uh, nano. Uh, I forgot the term that they use now. But you, you've got within the atom itself other um, uh, substances, as it were, smaller and they're trying to understand this whole mystery. Now, if we can't get our brains around a little atom, how we get our brain around God, and, and how we can explain this in all this detail, but we don't abandon the concept of the atom, or we don't abandon the concept of electricity, etc., uh, etc., et we embrace it and we use it, even though we don't fully comprehend it. And I think that we're either going to embrace the Bible and accept what the Bible teaches, or we need to reject it, but we can't have it both ways. I've really enjoyed this study, Pastor. It's given me a, a new revived uh, encouragement that I serve an amazing, complex, powerful God. And the fact that you've just been going through, and I can tell based on the pages of notes you have in front of you, you're just touching the surface. It has come to me, and I want to see if you would agree with me, that you have to accept the Trinity if you are going to accept the Bible as it is written. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, I don't think there's any dispute about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, all people who have rejected the Trinity have been labeled heretical and apostates. Uh, it's a doctrine that, you, you, look, as I said, you cannot explain eternal love. You must have at least two persons for there to be any kind of love. That And if you talk from eternity, you must have two people from eternity in itself. So you, you, it's, it's just that the Trinity explains so much that uh, that unless you could, how, again, go back to the baptism, how you can have the Father speaking, the Son there, and the Holy Spirit coming. How do you explain that, right? Uh, it, it really makes a lot of sense. And... Um, as I said, as you, you so well put it, the complexity of God and the, the mystery of the Godhead and all, uh, to my mind, it's not, it doesn't defeat my faith. It strengthens my faith because it shows me that this God is so incomprehensible that I have finite mind can't wrap my mind around infinite God. And that makes God more glorious than if I can just put him in a test tube and analyze him. A listener from St. Martin sent in Isaiah forty-eight twelve to 16 has another hint of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. And I can read a couple more of these verses. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand together. All ye assemble yourselves, and hear which among them hath declared these things. The Lord hath loved him. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him. 
I'm sure we could go on all evening uh, with passages. Pastor, we have Nathan calling from Nevis. Thank you for your call, and go ahead, please. Good evening. Hi, good evening. Haven't heard you for a long time, man. Good to hear your voice again. I did call at the end of the program last week. Oh, I didn't hear you, so I will. Good hearing your voice, though. No, it wasn't on the air. Okay. Now, this matter of uh, the Trinity, mm -hmm. there's a preacher here on the island. He's on the radio every Sunday. Now, we call him Jesus only. Uh -huh. their, their trump card is Acts 238. Uh-huh. Now, he said that is the gospel, Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh -huh. Now, he says that, he also said, that Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the name of the Father. Jesus is the name of the Son. And Jesus is the name of the Holy Ghost. He says there is one God, not three. Yeah. You want me to respond? What's your take? Well, uh, uh, again, that is called... By the way, that's not new. I hope you know that. Uh, that teaching is, is uh, called Sabellianism, and it's also called modalism. That's, that's, that, that's where um, God just changed different forms. So Jesus is, is the Father. Jesus is also the Holy Spirit. That is a heretical doctrine that was rejected since the third century. So this is nothing new. This is, this is old stuff being regurgitated and now being brought before people. But the, the, that was branded as heresy long time. is now being revived. It's just like the Jehovah's Witness. The, it's a Arian, what is called the Arian heresy. Uh, that the church condemned that uh, said that Jesus Christ is the first creation of God and he's he's not God he's just a God that was rejected in the third century all of these doctrines that are now coming to the surface and the church rejected those many many centuries ago it's just that they're being revived and the reason why they're finding traction is because we are living in an age that people are biblically illiterate people don't know church history they don't they don't no longer study generally speaking and so they, they, they're caught unawares, not even realizing that these are not new doctrines. But the guy is in error, very, very clearly in error. Uh, uh, and, uh, but so you study the New, new Testament, you study the Old Testament, it's very, very clear that uh, Jesus is not the same as the Father, and Jesus is not the same as the Spirit. Uh, otherwise, you've got total nonsense in, uh, the, at the baptism. The Father speaking... Uh, the Son there, and the Holy Spirit coming. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that is a doctrine that's been rejected, but it's called modalism. I said last time on the radio that uh, T.G. Jakes, up until recently somebody told me, uh, somebody calling and said that he has changed his mind recently, but he used to hold to that same position of modalism. He never accepted the Trinity. Now he's accepted the Trinity uh, from what the calling program mentioned. But this is not. Uh, There's nothing new. It's been rejected and rejected for good reasons. Uh, he's teaching error, not to be rejected. And uh, I hope the people in your part of the world wise up to what is going on and take a stand against that falsehood. Okay. Thank you very much for your call, Nathan. We appreciate it. Keep listening there in Nevis, St. Kitts area. We appreciate. You listening to the lighthouse? Encourage others to listen and have a blessed night, Pastor. As you were developing the Trinity throughout the program tonight, 
it obviously was more clear in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament, but there were very clear hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Why do you think that God didn't just lay it all out to those for those Old Testament saints? I don't have a full explanation for that. I just know that every single doctrine in the Bible is progressively revealed. God, God gives people light. As they respond to that light, he gives greater light. You know, I, I suppose that, remember that when we're dealing with, dealing with man, uh, the, the level of knowledge they had uh, at that point in time, you, 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 you can't give a child a university lecture uh, you have to deal with a child at that stage of development. And I think that God dealt with man at that particular stage that man was at. Uh, some of the things, for example, that he allowed. Uh, for example, we, we talked about, uh, for example, allowing polygamy. Even with some of the godly men in the Bible, that was never God's will from the very beginning. It was one man, one woman. But again, dealing with man at the stage that man was, God revealed truth uh, progressively. Uh, and I don't think that man would have been able to grasp uh, the fullness of knowledge at that, that, that stage of his development. So I think that's part of the progressive development of man and God revealing truth uh, as man responds to that truth, more truth, more truth. And that, that is true generally, by the way, that uh, even now in your Christian life, there are certain things that you grasp, and 10 years ago, certain things that make sense to you. As you go deeper into the Word and you respond to the Word, more truth is given and more truth is more given, and God continues to give you more light. So would it be okay for someone to say, I have new revelation, God has given new revelation now that we're in a new time period? If by revelation mean new understanding of the New Testament or, or the Bible, but not new revelation sense that is direct revelation from God that has no relationship with the Scriptures. God's revelation is complete, but our understanding of that revelation is unfolding. God's revelation that you're referencing is the, the Word of God. The Word of God. Okay. It's the only book. Thank you very much for your very clear teaching tonight. Thank you for joining us on That's Truth. Thank you for those who sent in questions. There were other questions that came in tonight. We don't have time in this episode, but Lord willing, next week, we will pick up with your questions. Tune in next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.